Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. My name is David London, and I am the Chief Experience Officer at The Peel, and it is a pleasure to welcome you to today's It's More Than History lecture series in partnership with the Baltimore National Heritage Area, and today also in partnership with the Baltimore Museum of Industry. <clears throat> a few housekeeping things before we begin. This event includes ASL interpretation as well as live transcriptions, and the transcriptions are available both in in the YouTube player as well as in the box located directly beneath the player. And thank you today to both our transcriber and interpreter. If you need any help with accessibility or if you have any suggestions, you can email access at thepeelcenter.org. In the event of any unforeseen circumstances, please watch the chat box to your right for further instructions. And speaking of uh, unforeseen circumstances, uh, if you need any technical help with today's broadcast, you can email us at online at thepeelcenter.org and somebody will be able to assist you. And you can also reach us on social media. We are at The Peel on Twitter and Facebook and The Peel Baltimore on Instagram. Um, and these handles are also being shared in the chat box to the right. While we welcome you to leave comments in that chat box, today's event is a rebroadcast, so questions will not be able to be answered by the panelists. Today's event will last one hour in length. For those of you who are unaware, The Peel is a center for Baltimore stories based in downtown Baltimore in the oldest museum building in America. Our building is currently undergoing renovation and we are in the final moments of our capital campaign. If you would like to support our efforts to bring our building back to life, you can do so by clicking the donate button to the right of the screen or by uh, clicking the buy a brick campaign button also to the right, or you can visit us anytime on the web to donate at thepeelcenter.org backslash donate. We begin this event by acknowledging with humility that the land where the Peel and Baltimore are situated today are the traditional ancestral and unceded lands of the Piscataway, Lenape, and Susquehannock indigenous peoples. The vast coastal area today known as Baltimore City, Maryland, sustained indigenous peoples until the arrival of Europeans beginning in the 1600s. Over the next 400 years, many Piscataway, Lenape, and Susquehannock communities were decimated, absorbed by larger villages or tribes, and or forced by the U.S. federal government to move west beyond the Mississippi with larger tribes. Since then, other tribal peoples have moved here in diaspora, including Lumbee peoples. On January 9, 2012, two tribes of Piscataway, the Piscataway Kanoi tribe and the Piscataway Indian Nation, became the first tribes recognized by the state of Maryland. In 2017, the state also recognized the Akahanic Indian tribe. We acknowledge the Peel stands on stolen lands, and I would like to also acknowledge that this history was adapted from an original text with whom we give great thanks to the original authors, Ryan A. Coons, Peter Dayton, and Ashley Minner of the Lumbee tribe. And now it is my pleasure to hand it over to the executive director of the Baltimore National Heritage Area, Shante Daniels. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm so glad that you're here to see part two of our three-part series, um, It's More Than History. This month, we are celebrating women. And so we are proud to present a program about the women of Bethlehem Steel, the women of steel uh, presented by the Baltimore Museum of Industry. So today's program is a perfect example of how multiple partners can come together in the region 
to produce great programming and to uh, promote our history of the area. In addition to today's program, we invite you to go to 1415 Key Highway, the BMI uh, campus, and enjoy their outdoor exhibit, um, which is called Women of Steel. And it's along the fence of uh, Key Highway. So there's no contact. You can enjoy the exhibit and get to know a little bit more about Baltimore's women and the women that contributed to our history here in Baltimore. So enjoy the program and don't forget Baltimore National Heritage Area. Thank you, Shantae. And for those of you who are looking for more information on the Baltimore National Heritage Area, you can find it at explorebaltimore.org. And now it is my pleasure to introduce this pre-recorded segment by introducing you all to the moderator of today's presentation, Michelle Stefano. Michelle is a folk life specialist at the American Folklife Center in the Library of Congress. Previously, she was a state folklorist for Maryland and faculty member of the American Studies Department of UMBC. In late 2012, she began the Mill Stories Project with UMBC professor Bill Schwembridge, uh, which focuses on documenting the stories and memories of Sparrow Point workers after the mill's closure. In 2014, they co-produced the film Remembering Sparrow's Point Steel Mill based on video interviews with a wide range of former mill workers. The Mill Stories Project and the film's trailer can be found at millstories.org. And with that, I will begin our pre-recorded segment and hand it over to Michelle. And thank you once again for joining us. I thought first uh, you would each introduce yourselves, perhaps talking a bit about the years that you were at Sparrows Point and um, maybe the first jobs you had uh, and then we'll get we'll dig deeper into that as we go along. But we'll first start out with Rita Hamlet and then we'll go to Sandy Adams Doyle and then Kathy Garrison. So please, Rita, tell us tell us about yourself. Well, my name is Rita and um, I went down to take uh, my brother and my cousin down to Bethlehem still apply for a job. And I seen these ladies coming up and I asked them, I said, Miss, uh, they hiring ladies? She said, they gonna start hiring. So I went there and I filled out an application and about two weeks later, they called me and I went down and they said, well, before we hire you, you're gonna have to gain 10 pounds. I said, gain 10 pounds? So I went back two weeks later and I had gained 7.4 pounds. So the man said, if you could gain seven pounds in two weeks, I'm gonna hire you because I know you'll gain the rest of the weight. But what the man didn't know was I put rocks in my bra, in my pocket, and in my socks so I could gain weight, so I could be heavier, you know, but I didn't gain weight, you know, so, you know, and they hired me. And I don't know if y'all know about Stevie Wonder, but when I got down there, it was like skyscrapers and everything. Oh my God, what in the world could you do down here? What, what is going on? And the first place I started, it was on the ore dock. The ore dock ships came in and brought iron ore, you know, and we was to get it off and place it where it had to go. And, then one day they said, uh, Rita, you got to go down in this hole. 
it was a hundred feet deep and two blocks long. Well, where is the hole? I'm looking for a little hole to climb down in, you know, and you know, I went with other guys and then getting out, they swing their leg over and come on out. I couldn't get my leg to go up there. So they would grab me by the back of my shirt and back of my pants and pull me out, you know, and it was a learning, it was learning. I was gonna quit every week. I was quitting that job. And I would say, wait a minute, stay and send your kids to summer camp and I'm gonna quit. Then I say, wait a minute, get them some school clothes, then quit. Then I say, wait a minute, buy them some Christmas stuff, then quit. Then my children grew up and was gone. I said, why do you still go to that job? I said, because you got to eat, dummy. Don't forget, you got to eat. And I stayed there. And I stayed. And today, I'm thankful that I stayed. You know, so... It was just, I went from one department to another, to another, to another. Even the guy said, would you wanted a man's job? I said, what is wrong with you? I'm sitting, sitting around for your wife, your children, your grandchildren. It, so I went home crying, daddy. They said I wanted a man's job. I came back to work. And the next time they said that, I said, excuse me, sir. I wanted a man's paycheck. And since I couldn't get you to give me your own, I came and got my own, you know, and I stuck and stayed. And I'm going to tell you, they paid more back in the 70s than they paying people today. I'm so happy that I had enough sense to stick and stay that some people would tell me, some guys would say, I said, I'm scared to go up there. He said, Rita, don't focus on the up or the down. Just go and do what you have to do. Don't look down. Don't look up. Just Stay focused on what you have to do. And that's what I had to do. And guess what? Today, I'm thankful that I stayed there. I'm thankful for my pension and I'm thankful for my social security checks. Come on, Miss Sandy. Okay, hi, I'm Sandy Adams Doyle. Can you hear me? I can. You can hear me? Okay. Um, I have a, a little bit different story. I graduated from Sparrows Point High School and went to college and I did some professional sales for a couple of years and although I was successful at it, it just wasn't fulfilling. And so I thought, well, Bethlehem Steel's hiring women and I've always been really handy with my dad helping him fix things. And so I went down and I took the tool test and you could hear people in the HR de department running around yelling, we got a girl who passed the tool test. We got a girl who passed the tool test. So I became a millwright's apprentice and it was a big blow to my dad. He had worked at Bethlehem Steel for 31 years. And when I stopped by his house to tell him the good news, he was like, I didn't put you through college to go down there and work. You're gonna get dirty. Go in there and change your clothes because you'll see how dirty you get. And I had to change the oil in the car and get in the crawl space and do a bunch of things. And he said, now, when you go, do not let those guys, they're gonna pull your chain. They're gonna send you for a three-way valve and not tell you what size and you'll have to walk across the plant to get this part. So 
make sure you find out the size. He said, and then they'll send you for make-believe things like skyhooks. And so rolled around, it was my day to start work. And my father had one of those metal lunch boxes and he gave me his lunch box. And inside the lunch box was an encyclopedia of tools. And he said, you're gonna to need to know all your tools and the proper way to use them. So I, you know, a, a little begrudgingly because there weren't many women who were uh, millwrights apprentice. There was an older guy in the gang. We, we sat in a place called the pit and there was a table and that's where we had our lunch and, and all. And I started to work in the Coke ovens and the Coke ovens are super, super hot. So uh, a millwright is um, an industrial mechanic. So they work on the equipment. They keep production going because they, um, they fix things. And I always like to fix things. This was probably about 1979, I think. And um, so I had this book and when I ate my lunch in the pit, Underneath the table, I'd read about the tool I had used. And, you know, a couple weeks went by and somebody said, oh, Sandy, what are you reading? And I said, nothing, nothing, you know. And they grabbed the book and they said, oh, look what Sandy's reading. She's got a tool encyclopedia. So I grabbed it and put it back in my lunchbox, a little embarrassed. But um, a couple weeks later, we had to fix this hydraulic line on a, on a uh, Coke pusher. Now in the Coke ovens, what happens there is they load coal and they heat it to a really high temperature without any oxygen. And then it becomes Coke. And that's what, that's what you, is used as fuel in the blast furnace. So they have this big piece of equipment that pushes through the oven and pushes the Coke out and it was broken. Well, the tool shop, they, they checked out a tube bender in the tool shop, but no one could figure out how to put it together. So what do they say? Sandy, go get your book. <laughs> and so I got my book and read to them how to put it together. And we were successful at fixing this hydraulic line. Every day it was something different and it was um, incredibly stimulating. It was hot. If you had to go up on the top of the Coke ovens, you had to put these wooden shoes underneath your steel-toed boots. And I started in August. And so you had the fireproof clothing, you had all that gear. It was pretty dirty, pretty hot, and pretty miserable. But I totally look forward to going to work. I especially love to spend um, downtime burning steel. And what that is, we would have these plates of steel that were like an inch thick. And you would fire up this torch with all the safety equipment and all. And I could actually, through this big plate of steel, burn my name or make squares. And they called me often to do that because they said women had a steady hand to be able to do um, that type of work. So it was very interesting. I, I unfortunately, I, after a few months, I got laid off and um, I began a career at Johns Hopkins. And so when they called me back, I chose to stay at Johns Hopkins. 
not because it was more money, because when you worked at Bethlehem Steel, boy, that paycheck was really nice. So, okay, Kathy, you're up. Hi, um, my name is Kathy Garrison. I started in 1976 and I was there for, I started in the number four in the steel making department. I was there for 36, almost 37 years. And I left when the company went, when they sold the company. But um, I started out in the steel making labor gang and um, and I was in the open hearth and uh, it was, it was a, uh, it was like, I felt like someone had dropped me off in the land of the giants because my first couple of days there, I couldn't get over how big everything was. And it was, it was an experience. They, they, I don't think they were really prepared for women there because they didn't even have a woman's bathroom in the mill, in the open hearth. And uh, it was, uh, it was definitely um, an eye opener, but it was very exciting job. It was scary. There were a lot of uh, machinery and I mean, just imagine it was almost like being in a, in a circus and you've got all these different rings and, you know, with all these different activities going on. There were cranes in the sky. There were, you know, in the air. I mean, the mills were probably, I don't know how tall they were, but I would venture to say they were probably at least a hundred foot tall, you know, the mills and uh, they had trucks with tires that were, that were bigger than me carrying these great big dump trucks with hot rock and they would roar by you and it was it was pretty amazing and uh but when i when i went down there i actually i didn't have dreams of being a steel worker when i was a little girl i just um grew up in in right in edgemere in a little town right next to the mill on jones creek and Everybody worked down there, just about everybody. And if you didn't work there, um, you worked in some fashion support of, in support of, of the mill. Um, normally, um, just about everybody on my street worked there. And um, and I grew up listening to the sound. You could hear, you could see the silhouette of the steel mill from my back door, and you could um, you could hear the sounds. And I always wondered, you know. But my first day at work, I can remember going, "Oh, that's what that is." That's what that noise is, you know, but uh, it was, it was definitely an experience. Thank you all for those really rich uh, introductions. I hope to go back a little and, and, and learn a little bit more about your experiences, including the challenges uh, you each face. And I just want to say for everyone joining us, I will be asking a series of questions to our three panelists until about maybe 2.35 around there, and then we will be opening it up to all of your questions so you can continue to put those uh, in the chat that you'd like to ask each of our distinguished uh, guests here today. Um, yeah, so just to give a little brief overview of women at Sparrows Point, that story does go back to the early 20th century, mainly the 1920s when women worked as what they called tin floppers, inspecting sheets of tin that were produced at the mill, Bethlehem Steel, as it was called at that time and for the majority of its life. Uh, and women worked in offices, you know, office jobs, uh, as well as clerks, uh, particularly after the, the post-war boom, uh, the height of Sparrows Point as the biggest steel mill in the world. But it really wasn't until uh, the late 1970s, after the 1974 consent decree, 
which uh, attempted to end racial discrimination in terms of hiring and promotion uh, at the mill, that that really ushered in this second wave, if you will, of, of women workers in all sorts of jobs like we've just heard. So um, I'd like to ask a little bit about that. Take us back into the late 1970s. Um, you know, so, uh, I know some of you were the first women in the positions uh, that you had. Um, maybe you know, describe a bit of what it was like. Obviously, it was a male-dominated world. Uh, and in terms of discrimination, I know from just talking with other women steelworkers in, in the projects I've been in, involved in, um, there was sexual harassment. Um, there was even loads of pornography up on the walls, um, and and yet there was this big need to prove uh, that you could do those the jobs, the man's job. So I'd love to open that up. Maybe we'll start with Rita, just talking about what it was like back in you know those first years and days, however you want to describe it at the mill. You know, I worked in the department. You know, when when you coat in the steel when you coating slabs with the steel when it the uh, when it stopped moving it would blow all over the place upstairs so the foreman said hamlet i want you to go up there and i want you to fill up three trash bags so when you try to pick it up it's blowing all over the place i couldn't pick it up and i looked around i said how am i gonna pick it up and it, it would breeze all you couldn't even get it, it wouldn't go on the shovel it couldn't so I seen the water line, I seen a long pipe, I turned the water line on, held the pipe to it, and I watered it down. Then I opened up bags and I filled up the bags. I filled up 15 bags. And I went back downstairs and sit in the room. And they said, Hamlet, if you didn't fill up three bags, we're sending you home. I said, I didn't fill them up. And he came back down the steps and the foreman said, Hamlet, Go here to the showers. Don't even worry about punching out. I got you. And the guy said, what? He said, she filled up 15 bags. They said, how did you do that? I said, what? Y'all need a woman to tell y'all everything? And I just kept on walking, you know. And uh, it was just like I, I had to prove myself. You know, the foreman said, Rita, you working with him. Whatever he do, you do. He jumped up and ran up the steps. I jumped up and ran behind him. And he said, what's the matter? I said, I don't know. The foreman said, do whatever you do. He said, this is how I get my exercise in. Well, I was running up the steps. He said, you're the first person that ever did that, that ran behind him. Okay, really? All right. So, you know, one time the foreman said the lights had went out and he said, Hamlet, put a bulb in there. I said, no, because I'm not an electrician. That's not my job. Uh, I'm not putting no bulb in there. That's not my job. He went and got a bulb and put it in there and fuck, start flying and all like that. I said, yeah, right. That's why we got electricians. I don't, I ain't put no bulb in there. And see, then I had left the ore dock and I had went to the coal sheet mill. And, you know, it was like in the labor gang, you know, wherever was yellow stripes, that's where you could walk. It would be safe. And that was my job. So I would go get gloves and put them on, pour bleach in the thing and wipe the yellow bars down and sweep up and all like that. And they say, well, we know who was here today, Hamlet. And you sit on the steps and the steps were like grates. 
And I'd sit out there and I'd pluck the cigarette butts from out the holes and all like that. And and uh, the foreman came up one day. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm getting the cigarette butts from out. He said, well, you have to clean. The I said, I've already done all of that. I've already cleaned them. The bathrooms, wiped the windows down. I had already did all of that. And he offered me a job, said his wife needed somebody to come to their home and help her clean the house. So I said, mister, I got five children and a husband. When I go home, I have to go home and feed my five children and my husband. I don't have time to go help you. I will clean up his office, water the plants, dump the trash, did everything. Because where I came from, where I grew up at, Believe me, we had to clean up every morning before we left out the door. I thought my mother was crazy. Why you got to clean? Who ain't? I said, Mom, my girlfriends, they only clean up on the weekend. She said, good, go move in with them, and then you won't have to clean up it on the weekend. So when I got there, I already knew what to do. You know, I already knew what to do and keep it moving, you know. But it, it was hard. It was hard on a woman. And they were very prejudiced. And I don't mean just the Caucasians, even the black guys was prejudiced against me, saying stuff like, you know, and I would go home feeling bad. And, but when I tell my father, I told you all the story, but it wasn't the whole story about I couldn't get a man's paycheck. So I came and got my own. No, I left out all the cuss words. <laughs> no. <laughs> so because I got 15 grandchildren and 18 greats and I just showed them how to get on, you know, to come on so they don't, don't want to hear granny. Uh, they call me Gigi. They don't want to hear Gigi using them words, you know, so, you know, but I stuck and stayed and, you know, when, when I retired, I was glad to retire. Then I started missing my job. I started missing the friends I had made down there and, you know, once a year, we would all go up to the Golden Corral and everybody would meet and, and you know, and stuff like that. And we would go down um, where the union was and pass out food and stuff like that. It just seemed like, man, I just miss all that stuff. I miss it, but I got some friends' numbers that I, like I called three people this morning. Don't y'all forget to zoom in. You know, I called them, but I send out about 40 texts to all my family and and the lady sent my daughter uh, like her email and she was sending it out to other people and send you the picture and you press it and you know I said I don't know what to do with this stuff you know so I just showed up so but my daughter said mom we could have did it at home yeah I know y'all good but all I want was a telephone answer and maybe I would text somebody back man then they want to watch movies listen to the radio i don't want to hear all that on my phone so you know we'll keep this circle moving come on come on miss sandy okay so <laughs> um i want i want to step back just a little bit because um i my husband uh, often says that i should have been an engineer i was really good with math in school but at the time in the 70s, um, no one in my family had gone to college. And my father assumed early on before I went to college that I would just maybe be a secretary down at the mill. And the thing I regret, I guess, is there were no role models in my life to guide me in a, in a direction that perhaps would have allowed me to 
become a professional engineer. I mean, I've, I really loved working with my hands. I loved um, designing stuff. So all of those things and the math would have fit perfectly to become some type of engineer. Um, but anyway, going back to Bethlehem Steel, the group that I worked in, it was a very small group. It was maybe five or uh, six men. And there was an older man there that I think I reminded him of his daughter. And so he protected me. So I, I didn't get ridiculed a lot. I didn't get taken advantage of. Uh, he, he sort of looked out for me. Although, uh, you know, the women were definitely treated differently. Um, you know, do you need a break? Sometimes I, I would hear. But the one thing that um, encouraged me that meant I was sort of part of their group was when they invited me to come have, I forget what they called it, a wing ding or something at Mickey's. Mm. They At Mickey's, they sold those beers in those court containers. And, you know, I would hear their stories about stopping there after work, but I was never invited. And then finally, I was invited to stop and, and have a beer with them. The other thing I have to say about that group, there, you know, they would have some downtime and these men would read the paper from front to back. They were incredibly intelligent. They politically were savvy. They knew what was going on, not only locally, but nationally. And I had incredible respect for them. So um, although my tenure was short there, it was um, interesting. And of course, I, I never ran into another woman while I worked there. So, okay, Kathy, you're up. Well, as far as... Um... The, the discrimination, the attitude towards the women at first was, uh, I think they thought we were a novelty, that nobody, no woman would want to, where I was at in the open heart. Like I said, there were um, women that worked in the tin mills and women in other parts of the mill, but where I, when I went into the open heart, there, um, there weren't any women. It was very hot there, very dangerous, and uh, for some reason, they just never brought women into there until the consent degree came through but um I got I, I got a lot of um comments like um it was almost embarrassing in a way because um or they made you try to feel make, try to make you feel guilty most of them were very supportive but some of them would say um you gotta be ashamed of yourself uh you should be home taking care of your baby because I did have a baby at the time and um, you're taking a good job away from a man and uh, you know the man's trying to support his family and you're taking these jobs away and what's the matter with you you know like and it, it didn't just come from the people in the mill it came from people outside the mill like other women that would go oh, I would never work there that place is so filthy you know but I always had a good comeback like I said if money buys a lot of soap <laughs> and uh, like for the guys that would say uh, you, you know, you should be at home with your kids. Um, I would say, so should you, you know, they'd say, this is too dangerous a place for a woman. Well, it's too dangerous of a place for anybody, really. This is just as dangerous for you. I mean, is your life worth any more, more any less than my life? You know, and if it wasn't for, um, if, if it wasn't me working here, it would be another woman. 
it would hire another woman in my place because the government says you have to hire so many women. I, I don't know what, not sure, I think it was like 25% had to be minority um, because of the consent decree. So um, I did feel a little guilty at first, um, just because back in, even back in the, uh, in the 70s, in the early 70s, people had very defined roles, like in my, in my neighborhood, I mean, the men were the, were the providers. And most of the women in my neighborhood were all where I grew up, were homemakers, you know, and that was your job. And it was a full time job to take care of your home and take care of your family. And the husband went out and made the money. And uh, if you, you know, that was that was just the way that it was my my husband, I was married at the time. My husband didn't really want me to work there. I kind of had to beg him, you know, let me work there. Cause I, I, you know, I really wanted to, wanted us to buy a home and, you know, and, and be able to, to, to get, get things quicker. And, um, but, you know, I, I mean, <coughs> after a while I, I became, you know, kind of, um, I developed like an edge to me and, once, once I think once, for, for the most part, people were very supportive. Um, then you had those ones that would make the smart remarks, you know. And and um, this one guy who was an older guy, he um, he would never talk to me, and I couldn't understand why he was, you know, why he was so just seemed so angry with me all the time. He was just, you know, this was very uh, very short, and you know. And I asked one of the guys, I said, what is wrong with him? He said, well, he's mad because he spent all that money to send his daughter to college and you're down here making more money than her, you know? And, and you know, he spent a lot of money to send his daughter to college. Like I was supposed to apologize for that or something. I was just there, you know, trying to make a living for my family, just like everybody else. Um, and, you know, it's just, I was willing to kind of like, Put up with the danger and the but you know the one thing that i can say is when you earn the respect once you earn their respect you know then all of that you know then they're very very supportive and we become we became like some some of the people that i worked down there with were i was very close to and we were very we were like family and um so when the when the mill like many years later when the mill finally did close it was like a death you know because I mean, it was people you had worked with your whole life and watched their kids grow up. And, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was kind of sad, but in the earlier days, I just kind of like would just put back to them and just say, you know, so something smart. <laughs> there were a lot of naked pictures and, and, um, a lot of remarks, like you'd be walking along and you'd hear one of the guys say, look, there goes one, like you're some kind of a bug or something. Um, you know, I don't think that any of them really thought in the beginning that the women would last, but, um, you know, we did. Yeah. And you not only lasted, you became the chair of the women of steel much later. Yes. The last decade of, of the mill's life. Um, perhaps, uh, I would love to ask about the balance of raising a family uh, and work, because even to this day, that burden of, of raising family is still on women. 
and yet we're out in the workforce. Um, but if you would like to also talk about the union, because we're getting a couple questions on, on your involvement in the, in the union and, and of course the beginnings of the Women of Seal group and what you did for that group, Kathy. Well, they had, um, like in the earlier years, I, to be honest with you, I didn't, um, I wasn't a real, um, I didn't, my, my, I felt like, like I had said before, I felt like somebody had given me the golden key to the boys clubhouse. And all I had to do was just go to work, do my job, do what I had to do and go home. And, you know, I wasn't going to start, start any fuss and I wasn't going to tell them to take their pictures down or, you know, I was, it was very clearly a man's world in the very, you know, in the very beginning, especially, I mean, there were naked pictures everywhere and the guys weren't used to working with women. I mean, in the open work, they weren't, they, they still had a, like, they would forget and they would urinate on the side of the wall and you'd be walking on your, oh, geez, oh, I'm sorry. Cause they, they had, that had always been the norm for them. They, you know, they just, it wasn't like they were trying to be disrespectful. They just would forget that there were women there. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't really say anything about the pictures or anything. Cause I knew that if I did, they would get rid of me. They would find a way to fire me or they say, she's not working out or, you know, send her off to some other mill or, you know, so I figured the less fuss I made and, and, you know, I just go to work, do my job and go home and try to prove myself and try to earn their respect, which, you know, um, which eventually they came to realize, you know, she's, they would laugh at, she's one of the boys, you know, but, um, I didn't really, in the early years, like I said, I kind of disconnected. I didn't get involved with the union because it wasn't, you know, it was just like, go to work, come home, go to work, come home. And then later on when I did, I realized how important it was. The union was, you know, was a tremendous, um, it was a way for women to connect and a lot of women disconnected. You didn't get, you didn't really, a lot of them didn't really, some of them did, but a lot of them didn't get invited to the bar after work, like, you know, or um, didn't get in, you know, wasn't included in some of the talk. And there was a lot of information that because women were so disconnected that, um, that we weren't getting. And, you know, so when I got involved, I was asked by the union if I would, um, if I would share the Women of Steel and they had, they had had a Women of Steel because Addie Smith was, they did wonderful things with Women of Steel. But for some reason, I think when, when the financial problems and then, you know, Bethlehem was going to go bankrupt, that kind of like fell by the wayside and it, it kind of, they, they kind of, you know, stopped concentrating on, um, on trying to keep that going because they, they were just looking at the survival of the plant. And um, so then, um, they came to me and asked me um, if I would be interested in sharing the women of steel. And I really was like, I'm not, you know, because I wasn't really very active in the union. I think I had maybe been to one or two union meetings or something like that. You only went to the union meetings when something terrible was going on or they told you to come because the plant was getting ready to shut down or something. And um, I didn't realize how much information I was missing and how disconnected I was. And so, yeah, we, 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 um, kind of, um, the, the local union president said, well, I'm going to send you to Blacksburg, Virginia and to a women of steel training course. It's a women's leadership course. And so you can find out 
matter of fact, I asked, what is it all about? And, and most people said, I don't know. We don't know, you know? And uh, so they sent me down there and I learned what it was about. And we come back and we kind of like tried to revitalize the, um, the women's steel program. And we had, you know, we had a lot of women coming to the meetings and stuff. And, and uh, but it was a way for us to all connect and us to network together, you know, because, you know, a lot of women did disconnect. They just, as far as like um, the work-life balance and that sort of thing, I think the shift work was the worst as far as that goes, because um, I worked for the first probably 20 years, I worked a 21 turn violate the schedule. They called it a 21 turn violate the schedule, but it was like you worked two, you worked three shifts in one week. You worked two 11 to seven, two three 11s and a daylight and you worked two daylights. It was just horrendous. And when you've got children, especially like when you worked three in the afternoon to 11 o'clock at night, if you had kids in school, you didn't get to see your kids at all. I mean, you know, they would be in bed when you got home. And when you woke up in the morning, it was like, you know, hurry, hurry. And they were off to school. So it was like, and sometimes I would come home from work and wake them up just so I could see them for a little bit, you know, but um, it was, um, I think the shift work was the hardest, just trying to adjust to that and, and uh, you know, trying to, the, the, the constant flipping there's no consistency in your life and, and uh, but believe it or not I mean you do get used to it after a while um, and then later on in the, the last um, five or six years I was a safety trainer so I worked all daylight and of course by then my kids were all grown but you know but uh you know it was um it's a lot of challenges but it's but you know it's amazing what you can adjust to and um as far as the Women of Steel goes, I think it was, um, and the union played a paramount part in keeping people, you know, trying to keep people um, informed and connected with each other. And, you know, and the Women of Steel, I think, kind of teaches you to lean in and to tell, you know, ask for what you need or ask for what you want. Because a lot of women don't, didn't do that. They would just sit back and, you know, like, some of the gloves they had, you would feel like Edward scissor hands, you know what I mean? Big gloves that were meant for bigger men, you know? And you, um, you know, a lot of women wouldn't, wouldn't say, could you order me some smaller gloves? But, um, you know, and you can't expect people to just assume that you need that or, or, you know, sometimes you have to, you have to speak up and, you know, and there are, you know, there are different it, it, it was really, really valuable in the sense that women started, you know, there were some women that were involved. There were women that held um, positions in the union, high positions, you know, and uh, it wasn't like everybody was, all women were totally disconnected, but a lot of them just didn't see the importance of it. And, um, and once you, once you see what you're missing, you see what you're missing, <laughs> but until right. that, you don't even know, you know. <laughs> So, yeah. well, I was wondering, Rita or Sandy, your experiences with the work-life balance, raising children, even at Hopkins, Sandy. Uh, but and uh, if you want to speak about the union, or just want to open it up, and then we'll go to the questions that are coming in. It looks like. Let me say this: When I first started down there, I was told we're not having no women working here, so we're not calling you Rita. We're calling you Frankie. And to the day, some of my workers, my friends still call me Frankie. Hey, Frankie. But 
I'm going to tell you some things that the union did for me. I was laid off when I came back to work. They had hired like two different people and they were getting a vacation time, but I wasn't. I said, well, wait a minute. How come I got eight years and they just got hired? How could I be laid off and you hired some new people? Wasn't you supposed to call me back first? I went to the union on that and they had to give me my vacation and they had to pay me for paying the person for the time that I was out. And one other time I went to the union because I had left the, I, I joined the, where I was a metallurgist and the state came in and said, tell me, do you know your job? I said, yeah. They said, well, tell it to me in the shortest terms. I says to make it perfect and ship it out on time. So, you know, we tested it. It would tell you what was missing, what needed to be put in, what was the temperature. So if the temperature was 400 degrees, I would make it 420 degrees. So by the time they came and got it and shipped it out, it would be the perfect temperature like that. And, um, you know, one time, uh, I noticed I had to call the union because first they said uh, they couldn't take me into the metallurgist department because why? It's a, a guy working there that got less time than me. How could he work there and I not work there? Just because I'm a female and he's a male, I had to go call the union in on that one, you know? And I remember when they sent us away to hear the union meetings and they would ask people like how much they was making and they was making like 30,000 and 35,000. And by then we was making like 55,000, you know, and it was like, wow, y'all make all that, you know? So, you know, it was so much stuff going on, but I would just call the union every time. And one time um, the union man said, that he couldn't help me. So I brought me a bus ticket and I went to the main union hall up in Pennsylvania. And I went in and I told him what was going on. And the lady said, well, we get ready to close. So you have to come back tomorrow. I said, well, you might as well close the union office down and just let me sleep on the sofa because I don't have anywhere to go. I'm from Baltimore. So they gave me a thing to go I could check into the hotel, then I could eat, and they open up the next day at nine o'clock. Well, I was sitting on the steps at quarter after eight to make sure when I got there. And I, and I told them, how could they hire people and I'm laid off? What? I didn't understand that. So they gave me a letter and told me to take it back to the union. And when I brought it back down, down, down to the union hall, the, the guy said, did you read the letter? I said, no, because it was sealed. I wasn't, if he wanted me to read it, why would he seal it? You know, I wasn't going to open it. And he said, oh, I want you to read it. And the guy, what he wrote in there, he said, I want you to do everything possible to get our sister her job back. You know, and then I got my job back. And they didn't send me back to my department. They said that my department didn't want me. I said, they didn't want me. I didn't understand that. And so about three weeks later, they said, Hamlet, report back to your department. I said, I thought y'all didn't want me. They said, we didn't even know you was back until we saw you at Mickey's. We didn't even know you had came back to work. 
I went and got the union on them again. How are they going to not send me back to my department and gave me a written statement saying that my department didn't want me back? Same man who screwed the light bulb in. You know, for, I don't know what it was, but some reason I just don't think he liked women or he didn't want no woman on his job. I don't, I really don't know what it was. You know, but I was never afraid to stand up and speak up for myself, you know, so the union did real good for as far as I'm concerned. They fought for me when I ran every time I would run to them. They fought for me. You know, I would call them and tell them what was going on and stuff like that. So, you know, you had to stand up for yourself and believe me, I, I, I faced a lot of things that I faced them anyway. You know, so I had to keep going because I had five children and a sick husband. If I went, when they hired me, I was working for uh, the telephone company. It was called CMP, the phone company. Bethlehem still took out more taxes than the CMP phone company paid me. They took out more taxes. So, no, I'm going to stay here because when I got my paycheck, it was like, oh boy, my pay in a vacation check, you know, they started with getting. 13 weeks vacation. Then they went down later on, like four or five years later, you could get six weeks vacation and not 13 weeks. But that's all right, six weeks vacation. I could be off a month and a half. Or I would take it a month here, a week here, a week there. You know, I could take off six weeks vacation. You know, I, hey, I love my job. And now I, miss, I have been missing my job because I've been gone for. 16 years and like when they hired me i was 26 when i left there i was 58 i've been gone i don't know how long i've been gone but I, this year i'm gonna be 77. i want my job back you know but i know they shut down and they said that the union or somebody owed the workers something 13 million 33 million dollars and long as they stayed open they had to pay them and I think that's why they shut down. I'm not sure. It's just something that I heard that's what happened. I don't know if that's what happened or not. But then I know they saw selling the parts. And they made millions selling the parts, breaking them down, selling them. So I felt like, why didn't they just keep rolling and keep bringing the money in and paying it off? But I don't know. If I was the president of the union, we'd still be here. So, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Come on, Miss Sandy. I'm done. <laughs> okay. Sandy, would you like to add or? Uh, um, I, I would just say that, you know, when I started at Hopkins, I guess it was 1980. And um, after you were there for a year, you got a considerable amount of uh, vacation time. And you, and you had sick time, but you were never, ever allowed to call in sick because your child was sick. They would tell you, you need to be bleeding in the hospital to call in sick. It was, you know, it was uh, very challenging raising children. And I think even today, it's difficult for women who are professionals or have a full-time job. Uh, and, the biggest thing for me is I had family support. And prior to 
starting our, our little panel discussion here, uh, I was talking with Kathy because I still live in Spares Point. My um, zip code is 21219. And we often know everyone, it, it, either our parents work together or uh, we went to high school together. I mean, my daughter went to Spares Point High School and the parents that sat on the bleachers at the sports games were people I graduated high school with. And so my parents lived a half a mile from us. And when it was difficult to have a sick child at Hopkins, I could um, depend on my parents to help me out. And I think that, you know, I call this community a one stoplight town, and it's still very much like a little Eastern shore town where we know each other, we help each other. Um, I, I don't think there's a lot of crime down here. And most of us are a product of Bethlehem Steel. I mean, my, my father's husband, I mean, my, my husband's father, he worked at Bethlehem Steel. My dad worked at Bethlehem Steel. All of his brothers worked at Bethlehem Steel. And like Kathy said, everyone we knew. And it was kind of funny when um, Kathy said something about the gentleman, he was a little angry because he had, he had sent his daughter to college and these people were making more money. Because when I um, started to work at Hopkins and my husband was a new employee at Baltimore Gas and Electric, the people we had graduated with had big boats and nice cars and, and all because the, the steel mill paid quite a bit more than than we were making. So um, it's, I know that it's been very sad for people when the mill closed and, um, and I don't think it was because it disrupted their lifestyle as much as it just um, upset something that they had known for so long and had been comfortable with. So, I mean, my father retired with 31 years. Craig's father had 33 years. Um, that doesn't happen anymore. In that day and age, it was like you planted a seed and you grew with the company and you became part of the company. And fortunately for me, that happened for me at Hopkins. I had 35 years at Hopkins. But nowadays, and, and not just this younger generation, but in a five-year period, they may have three different jobs. And so that longevity that was offered to those at Bethlehem Steel or institutions like Hopkins, it doesn't exist any longer. Um, uh, you know, product of technology, of becoming a, um, a rather than a manufacturing uh, society, we've become more of an intellectual property society, service society. So um, just times are changed, but boy, it's fun to remember. Well, we're getting up there with the time. So I do want to make sure I'm uh, asking some of the questions that have come in from our audience. One is a rather interesting one, and I'll throw it out to whoever would want to answer. Um, it's about the safety of the jobs and, and health issues. So uh, Susan asks, did any of you get any education about the health effects of breathing the air in the areas you worked? She visited the Coke oven area once and she says even just being near them, the odor was overwhelming. So anything about that, that knowing about the, the possible dangers? So uh, I, would, I would just jump in very quickly. It was horrific and 
potentially a reason why I didn't go back there. There was a gentleman, he would go over to this spout that just put out these fumes. And if he had a nasal congestion or whatever, he would stick his nose up there and say, oh, clears it out. And, you know, I often wonder what happened to him. And, you know, it's it, it was a, a, a really scary place as far as carcinogens. I mean, and living in the community here, our snow early on when I was a kid, our snow would be red. I mean, it would be white when it came down, but it was red after a day or so because of the air pollution. Yeah, that's it for me. Kathy, Rita, did you have any education when you first got there or at some point? Um, they, they uh, in the in the earlier years, yeah, they they were, you know, they would give you safety equipment and they, they told you about the, the safety and told you what to look out for. And they always wanted you to have someone with you, like, you know, and that sort of thing. Um, but OSHA played a big part and in, in, in pushing the safety issue and, and, you know, requiring that they, that they, uh, that they, you know, do a better job safety. It, a lot of those safety regulations are, um, are written in blood. And there was a lot of people killed that way. And it was very common. It wasn't like um, like you were shocked by it because it, it you know, it, it was uh, the sort of thing where they say, oh, somebody over in Hot Mill got killed today. Somebody in the pickler got killed today. Somebody, in the, you know, electrician that got killed. And, you know, it's, it's very sad, but it was, it was, uh, you know, it was very uh, way, way, way too common. But um, so you knew and you knew, you know, to you didn't you know, wear your safety helmet, you didn't wear your helmet because they told you to, you wore it because you knew, you know, if you didn't anything at any time could fall from the sky, from the crane and hit you in the head or whatever like that. Um, and everybody, and everybody looked out for each other. It was almost like being um, like in the service or, or, you know, where everybody kind of, you know, we all were very, very protective of each other. You know, you didn't want to see anybody um, you took it very personal when somebody that you work with got hurt. Yeah, so, but um, yeah, and and it, as time went on, I think environmentally they became a lot more aware. But in the earlier years, um, you were desensitized to it if you lived in the neighborhood because you know it was just it's part of the landscape. Once again, thank you all so much for joining us this afternoon for the uh, It's More Than History lecture series in partnership with the Baltimore National Heritage Area. Up on your screen now, you should see a variety of links which you can go to for more information on the organizations involved in today's event, uh, as well as more information about the uh, project which you just learned about. So once again, thank you all for joining us and we hope you have a wonderful weekend.